Well, good morning, Glenkirk. It is such a blessing to be here and to be here as your called pastor is surreal. <laughs> um, many years have gone into leading up to this, and so I feel very blessed and very grateful. And we are in a series called The Greatness of the Cross. Through the season of Lent leading up to Easter and throughout this series, we're asking a couple of questions. How did this symbol of death become a symbol of God's power? What exactly did the cross do for us? Through asking these questions, we are learning that God redefined greatness through the lens of the cross. The church has chosen the cross as the symbol and the emblem of Christianity. And the reality is that if you do not understand the cross, you don't understand Christ. The message of the cross was seen as foolish, even scandalous. The cross was equivalent with a gallows, a gas chamber, a firing squad, a guillotine. It was not a picture of strength or of conquest. It meant that you lost not that you've won. It was weakness. And yet Constantine would later put the sign of the cross on the shields of his soldiers and say, in this sign, conquer. If you have spent much time reading your Bible, you know that our God is a God of reversals. The weak become strong, the last become first, and this sign of weakness becomes a sign of greatness. Because in giving up everything, Christ gave us everything. And so last week, Pastor Tim taught about how the cross paid our ransom. He talked about how we were held hostage to sin and evil and death, but God was willing to pay our ransom price. And it was a costly price indeed. Today, we will see how the cross is the great exchange. Jesus Christ as our substitute. And so let's read the scripture together. We're gonna to look at two passages this morning that come from both Galatians 2 and Galatians chapter three. And so would you stand with me for the reading of the scripture? Galatians 2 verses 19 through 21. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. And then Galatians 3 verses 10 through 14, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith, we might receive the promise of the Spirit. You may be seated. <clears throat> 
Today, we are talking about this big idea of substitutionary atonement. Christ became our substitute. Now, substitute is not a perfect word. It's not a word that comes from the Bible. And so I don't want you to get caught up in the word itself, but rather what is intended by it, what is meant by it is this idea of instead of Jesus died for me. And if he didn't, I would have to. Substitution is at the heart of the gospel story. It goes all the way back to Genesis 22 in the story of Abraham and Isaac. And you might be familiar with that story. Abraham is told to sacrifice his son, his precious son, his promised son, Isaac. And he responds in faith, climbing Mount Moriah with his son who asks him where the lamb is for the burnt offering. Max Lucado says, one wonders how the words made it past the lump in Abraham's throat. As he responds, the Lord will provide the lamb. And indeed he does. An angel stays Abraham's hand and they find a ram caught in the thicket. He names the place Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. This is the story that later comes to mind in John when it is declared, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so the story of substitutionary atonement is the story of the Lord providing. Abraham and Isaac were not the main characters in that story, the Lord was. It was his plan all along. He knew the end from the beginning. And just as the ram was sacrificed instead of Isaac, so the Lamb of God is sacrificed in our place. Romans 8.32 says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. The truth is Christ died in our place instead of us, one person for another. And that truth has great implications. Today, we're gonna look at just three. The first one is if Christ is our substitute, we couldn't do it on our own. Isaiah 53 verse six says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. John Stott put it this way, we cannot enter the holy presence of God trusting in the rags of our own morality. We have to start here with these two basic things that we know. God is righteous and we are not. Something is wrong between us and God. The relationship has been damaged. Think of Moses asking to see the glory of God. God replies that Moses can just get a glimpse of his back. For if you see, for you cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live, he says. And just being in God's presence, Moses radiates it as he comes down the mountain, so much so that he has to wear a veil over his face or it would frighten everyone. That is the holiness of our God. <clears throat> Sorry, excuse me. In the book of Galatians, it's clear that there was this group of false teachers that arose that are often called Judaizers. They taught justification by works of the law that you could establish your own righteousness that they needed to follow the law in order to be made right with God. 
Paul's letter then to the Galatians is to combat this false teaching. This is not exclusive to them though. This is something that we hear taught all the time. Sometimes it's really obvious, but other times it's rather subtle. But underneath a lot of ideas in this world is this thought that if you just work a little harder, you can win your own salvation. If you're just a good enough person, you can be made right with God. And I'll I'll never forget a time when someone that I knew to be a really strong believer got up and shared this idea that he had read in a book that Gandhi was such a good person. Why would we question whether he is saved? And it's really subtle, but it's so deceiving. It just starts to question the importance of the cross, the importance of Christ. And it tells us that we can just be good enough. My daughter Kaylee has this face that she puts on when she has gotten into something or done something that she shouldn't have. And so I looked to her at her and I said, Kaylee, you look guilty. And she responded back to me, well, I am guilty, mommy. And so now sometimes she's been saying that to me, I'm guilty, mommy. And She has no clue what that means, but every time my response back to her is always, we all are, honey, we all are. And having just finished up this eco-ordination journey, I can tell you that one of our core beliefs is total depravity, that we are completely sinful. If left to our own devices, we would choose sin. And so we cannot work our way to God. And the question I kept coming back to when I was studying for this sermon is, why is this even appealing? Why do we want to believe that we need to work to be good enough to gain our own salvation? And the answer I kept coming back to was control, that we want to be in control. We want to know that we're in control and we fool ourselves into thinking that we could possibly live up to what the law really requires. Jesus takes the law steps further, not just do not murder, but don't even think about it. Not just don't commit adultery, but don't even look at someone lustfully. No one could ever possibly live up to all that the law really requires. But here is the reality. We think it's noble to live this way, to try to do our best to be righteous in order to get to God. But in fact, it isn't noble at all. It's to deny all that Christ did. It is to refuse to allow God to be the gracious God that he is. And it is to say to Christ, you didn't really have to die. This is what is said in the Galatians passage that we read. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. And so if Christ is our substitute, we couldn't do it on our own. But secondly, if Christ is our substitute, he became us. In this passage in Galatians that we read, it said, Christ became a curse for us. This is strong language and it probably makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable. First Corinthians 5 verse 21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Tim Keller points out that the truth is every relationship has at the heart of it, 
law. Every marriage has laws. If you wanna have a loving relationship, you can't just live any way that you want. And our relationship with God is no different. It is covenantal. And so there are rules. And if we honor them, blessing. But if we don't, curse. In Deuteronomy, it talks about anybody who is hung on a tree is cursed. Hanging on a tree, that death was a sign that the man was cursed. And Jesus became that curse for us. The curse was transferred from us to him. He took it voluntarily upon himself. And this is why on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Interestingly, I learned that this is actually the only instance where Jesus refers to God this way as my God. Every other time in his earthly ministry, he calls him father, this word of intimacy and relationship. And so you can even see the distance between him and God here in the way that he talks to him. And the level of pain then was connected to his level of relationship with the father. The agony was in losing that relationship as he was treated legally as sin. He lived an absolutely human life so that he could be treated as sin and so that we could be treated as holy. This is where the difference between Christ as our example and Christ as our substitute comes in. Christ, of course, is an example for us as to how to live. And I think we're gonna look at that a little more next week. But this week we focus in on him as our substitute. This goes beyond example. It's not just showing us how we should live. It's living instead of us. He takes our place. You see, if we view him as only our example and we stop there, then we are just overcome by that first truth that we can't do it on our own. We can't live up. We are only then filled with guilt. But if he is our substitute, we can be fully confident. We put ourselves where God should be all the time. But the radical thing is that God put himself where man should only be. Jesus became us. And so if he is our substitute, he became us. But thirdly, if Christ is our substitute, we are forgiven. First <clears throat> Peter 2 verse 24 says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. As our substitute, he gave us his name. The same spirit that came upon Christ at baptism comes upon us as well. We are forgiven. We are healed. Galatians 2.16 says, a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And this word justification is a legal term used in the law courts. It is the opposite of condemnation. To justify is to declare someone not guilty. As we put our trust in Christ, as we acknowledge our inability to live up to the law, as we acknowledge our sinfulness and our helplessness, we are declared right. 
we are justified in Christ. It, in Christ, it takes place as we are united with him. And therefore we are changed, radically, permanently changed. We are a new creation. Paul talks about it in Galatians as a death and resurrection. We have died to the law so that we might live for God. We've been crucified with Christ. This is a declaration upon us of what God has done. Don't miss it. If we don't understand justification, we don't understand the Christian faith at all. Jesus's righteousness is transferred to us. We don't develop it. We just receive it. So I reiterate these three things. If Christ is our substitute, we couldn't do it on our own. He became us and we are forgiven. But now I wanna move into applying this. What does this mean for how we live? And so here, I know it says if, but I want you to see since there instead. Since Christ is our substitute. Three things. First, since Christ is our substitute, let's stop trying to do it on our own. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. As Stott said, we cannot trust in the rags of our own morality. So let's not go our own proud, independent way, thinking that we don't need or want someone to stand in for us. Today, I'm gonna to be very real with you. A few weeks ago, my family and I went to the beach since I was preaching at a church in Huntington Beach. And so we decided to stay out there for the weekend. So we booked this little cabin in a campground. It was a very tiny cabin with one room and two kids and things got tight. <laughs> We argued. The kids had meltdown after meltdown. We barely slept. And there was some yelling. There was a few breakdowns, mostly from me. And nothing was worse than coming down the steps of that cabin to see the people camping right outside. I knew they heard me. They knew they heard me. And I was trying to look like the good mom who doesn't yell at her kids. It was mortifying. And I have to be honest, one of my first thoughts was I really hope I don't have to talk to them because I do not want them knowing that I'm here as a pastor preaching at a church nearby. In fact, honestly, the idea of telling anyone that I'm a pastor is completely daunting to me still. I feel like now I have to live up to some impossible standard. I even told my husband last week when I heard that I would officially be considered the pastor here at Glenkirk that we better get our partying out last week because it's over today. But here is the truth that we need to take hold of today. Stop trying to do it on your own don't pretend that you're better than you are. Don't put a mask on. Don't be like Adam and Eve in the garden pointing to each other and saying, they made me do it. Let's take responsibility for our own actions, accept that we've gone wrong, that we are not perfect. We can't do it on our own. And let me tell you, when you do, it is an enormous relief. You don't have to carry that burden anymore. You can just be you. Admit your failings in all humility because only when we do that 
can we even begin to grasp what was truly done for us on that cross? Tim Keller points out that there are often two responses to the gospel. Either we turn to legalism, where we think we have to live according to the golden rule, follow the 10 commandments, be a good person, or God won't love me. Or we go the other way and believe that God just accepts people as they are. People are basically good. To err is human. But either direction misses the gospel. Legalism, on the one hand, doesn't take the law seriously because it thinks for a moment that we could even live up to it. But on the other hand, that the gospel's too demanding or too exclusive and God is love, so he wouldn't turn anyone away. That's not real love. It's not costly love. And then salvation costs nothing. The only real truth, the only true gospel is the tension between we are a righteous sinner. We are broken, but absolutely loved. And we have to hold both. Honestly, this is something I loved about Ash Wednesday this year falling on Valentine's Day. It was a reminder that we are human. We are dust but at the same time that we are absolutely and incredibly loved because we have to hold both. Because if we believe in a holy God who isn't loving, we're gonna hate ourselves when things go wrong. But if we believe in a loving God who isn't holy, we're gonna hate him when things go wrong. So we have to hold both the holiness and the love, the sin and the righteousness. We are righteous sinners. This is the truth of the gospel, and that is the truth of Christ as our substitute. I came across this hymn by William Cowper that says this, how long, how long beneath the law I lay, how long, how long I struggled to obey, how long, how long in bondage and distress, how long, how long I tried without success to see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, can change a slave into a child and duty into choice. And isn't that the truth? We can't do it on our own, but when we see, when we truly see all that he has done for us, duty turns into choice as we, out of gratitude, want to serve him. So we can't do it on our own, and we need to stop trying to do it on our own. But secondly, since Christ is our substitute, glory in the cross. Galatians 6, 14, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In the King James Version, it says instead glory in the cross. And there's no exact English equivalent to this word. It's boast, glory, revel in, trust in. It's our obsession, what dominates our mind and fills our attention. And for Paul, this was the cross of Christ. It was central to Jesus, and therefore it was central to Paul. The Galatians themselves were not actually there for Jesus's crucifixion. They weren't able to see it with their own eyes. And yet Paul sees his life and his ministry as so clearly displaying the crucifixion of Christ that in Galatians 3.1, he describes them as having seen it. He brought the past into the present. John Stott says he had so dramatized it before their eyes that he made it a present reality. And so may we do the same. 
May our lives be so characterized by the crucifixion that we outwardly display it before the eyes of others. May they look at the way we live, our humility, our love, our blessed self-forgetfulness, and may the past be brought into the present before their eyes. May those who weren't able to physically be there at Jesus's crucifixion be brought into the presence of it every time they look at how we live authentically through self-denial, the life of a servant. May our lives display the greatness of the cross. But finally, since Christ is our substitute, Embrace peace with God. This is last, but certainly not least. Isaiah 53 verse five says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we have been healed. Jesus gave us not just his life as an example, but his righteousness, his name, In him, we hear those precious words. In you, I am well pleased. And the same spirit that came on Jesus during baptism comes upon us as well. Rejoice in it, revel in it, embrace it. You are forgiven. Don't doubt it. Don't question it. Don't for even a moment allow the devil to Speak guilt into your mind or into your heart. You are redeemed. You are justified and you are forgiven. We have been studying the fruit of the spirit at Women's Bible Study and we spent three weeks on peace. And one of the passages that we looked at was Ephesians chapter two, verse 14, that says, he himself is our peace. Peace is a person If you need it, you just need him. Jonathan Cruz in his book on the fruit of the spirit and the character of Christ says, God's entire purpose for the universe is best summarized with that word, peace. Peace is what makes the cross so fantastic. It is the greatness hidden in the guise of weakness because in those outstretched arms along those beams, Jesus brought peace to the world. He removed the barrier. He made us righteous. God put himself where only man should be. We couldn't do it on our own. And so he put himself in our place. And to allow ourselves to question that, to beat ourselves up for not being good enough is to deny the effectiveness of that act of love. It is to put aside the grace of God. May we not do that. May instead we see the gravity of this great exchange and allow it to speak to our hearts the word that only God himself can truly speak, peace. Would you pray with me? Father God, may we be overcome by this great exchange. Thank you that you took our place and because of that we are forgiven. Would you speak peace to our hearts and to our minds and remind us of what you did for us on that cross? We are so grateful and we just want to live for you. In your name I pray. Amen.